Indigenous ownership or co-ownership or defined financial agreements with clean energy projects across Canada represents almost 20% of Canada's electricity generating infrastructure. Indigenous communities are the second largest asset holders of clean energy projects. So Indigenous communities by the hundreds are really deeply committed to clean energy and they have acquired a lot of know-how. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome to another episode of Sustainability Leaders. I'm Susan McGeechee, head of the BMO Climate Institute. Today, we're talking about the level of renewable energy required across Canada to achieve our climate goals and the opportunity to increase Indigenous participation in this development. I am joined by Chris Henderson, Executive Director of Indigenous Clean Energy Social Enterprise and President of Lumos Energy. Indigenous Clean Energy is a pan-Canadian not-for-profit platform that promotes Indigenous inclusion in Canada's energy futures economy. Welcome, Chris. Good to be here, Susan. Let's start with some background on Indigenous Clean Energy, from your initial vision to your objectives over the next five to ten years. Thanks for asking, Susan. I mean, Indigenous Clean Energy was an outgrowth of my work with Lumos Energy for the last 20 years, where I was acting as an advisor to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities as they sought to develop and become partners in renewable energy projects. Around 2015, I realized that what we really needed to do was to build Indigenous capacity to be partners and take projects together forward with their partners. So therefore, we first started an Indigenous training program called 2020 Catalyst, which is now in its sixth cohort. And from that, we realized that Indigenous communities and organizations and people wanted a place that was their home. And we founded Indigenous Clean Energy in 2018, and it's grown since then. And now we have a suite of 10 to 12 programs covering all spheres of clean energy, renewables, energy efficiency, advanced energy, green energy infrastructure. It really is that hub for Canada. And our way forward is to really get even greater Indigenous participation throughout the clean energy spectrum, both in terms of economic development and climate action. Thanks, Chris. I mean, just from observing, there are many successful projects through this platform, which do help Canada achieve both our climate and reconciliation ambitions. Can you share some examples of these projects, just even, you know, one or two and and how you were able to move them forward? Yeah, I'd be absolutely pleased to. So if you look, for example, at the region of Gaspé in Quebec, where there's very strong winds, the Mi'kmaq communities, three of them in Gaspé, decided to say, look, we'd like to build a large renewable energy development, a wind energy development. They negotiated with the Quebec government and they negotiated with a partner who happens to be Energex, which is a publicly traded energy development company. And together, they developed a 150 megawatt wind farm that they collectively own between Energex and the three Mi'kmaq communities. And that's a very significant project. It's a project of $700 million and it's been operating now for four years. An example of a completely different kind of project would be in the community of Kiashki, Zaging, and Anishinaabek, or Gull Bay First Nation in Northern Ontario, about a two-hour drive north of Thunder Bay. 
Its geographic location means that the community is reliant on diesel power for its power, and therefore they want to diversify away from that. So over the last four years, uh, Galway First Nation has developed a solar array, which is now displacing around 40% of the diesel they would consume normally, and they own that project 100%. These two projects, Mesky Ujusin Wind Farm in Gas Bay and the Giza Solar Project in Galway First Nation, are just illustrated projects of hundreds, in fact, even thousands of renewable energy projects that Indigenous communities now own under 100% or with partners. That's amazing. And I, I'm just wondering, you know, where are you still seeing gaps and what needs to happen to fill those gaps? What I note, first of all, is to share a metric that's really important. Indigenous ownership or co-ownership or defined financial agreements with clean energy projects across Canada represents almost 20% of Canada's electricity generating infrastructure. Indigenous communities are the second largest asset holders of clean energy projects, second only to Crown and private utilities. So Indigenous communities by the hundreds in terms of communities and thousands in terms of projects are really deeply committed to clean energy and they have acquired a lot of know-how. But going ahead, it's more than renewable energy. We, we actually use a compass and we speak of renewable energy being the North Star, but then the South Star is energy efficiency and conservation of Indigenous homes and facilities. And the East and West Stars are advanced energy systems and green energy infrastructure. The biggest single gap that we believe exists today, because there will still be many more renewable energy projects and they will continue to move forward. But the biggest single gap is the absolute deplorable state of poor energy use and inefficiency and cost in Indigenous homes and facilities across the country. We've identified that there's a need for about $6 billion worth of infrastructure, and this has to be married together with building Indigenous capacity and training and governance at the community level and the right policies that allow you to go forward. So we think that Indigenous energy efficiency housing is the biggest single clean energy opportunity ahead, and also the biggest single economic and climate change opportunity. That's a great reminder, Chris, that energy efficiency is the first step in the decarbonization hierarchy. I wonder if you could talk about, you know, I understand that some nations can more easily access capital than others. How can we advance equity opportunities with more renewable energy developments or other decarbonization or climate solution projects to these other nations? Susan, let me answer that question in two parts. In the first part, With regards to renewable energy generation, we say the solution is a triangle, three points of a triangle. One point of the triangle is capital, but the other two equally important points are government policy and regulations, particularly at the provincial and territorial level, and Indigenous capacity. Our role with Indigenous clean energy is to help build Indigenous capacity. You can get capital, though, if you get the right kind of policy and regulations. And so therefore, certain jurisdictions have done a great job, like places like Yukon and BC. Some jurisdictions like Northwest Territories or Nunavut are a bit behind, and Saskatchewan's behind as well. We need to change that. But if you get those three pieces, what does that mean in terms of capital? In typical terms, you have a series of components that are put together to make a renewable energy project happen. You need land, you need permitting, you need authority to use the land, you need technology, you need capital infrastructure, and you need all those packages that make the project happen. So when you finance the project, you typically look at long-term lending, which comprises anywhere from 80 to 90% of the total capital required for that project, and the remainder being equity from the partners, indigenous communities and their partners. 
For that long-term financing of 80 to 90% of the project, lenders like insurance companies and pension funds, institutional funders really look to see what's the integrity of the project. So they're not concerned about whether the indigenous community owns the land because all land is indigenous land in this country, but it may not be technically owned by indigenous communities. They're more concerned about the veracity of the project. Do you have access to the land? Do you have infrastructure for the land? Do you have all permits, including environmental permits? Do you have regulatory authorities? Do you have an offtake agreement for someone to buy that renewable energy? And is it economic overall? If you have those components, you can acquire the long-term capital. And because indigenous communities are partner typically with a development company or utility or an engineering partner or a finance partner, it's that combination of partnerships that's the backstop for that long-term financing. Now, I mentioned there's a second part to the answer. Energy efficiency is a completely different situation because then you are dealing with indigenous lands, typically reserve lands of First Nations. And that is a problem then in terms of getting financing because lenders who might say, well, we'll lend you forty dollars or $50,000 or more to fully retrofit your house and make it energy efficient, a deep retrofit, they're saying, well, we're uncomfortable lending to you because there's risk associated with that. And that risk is that if we have to recover that capital. The ownership of the land happens to be owned by the band, for example, not the individual. How do we deal with that? This is where new financial solutions and creativity is needed. And in fact, what we hope to partner with with a range of organizations and would welcome BMO's involvement later this coming winter is a design process to say, okay, since we've had a lot of success with renewable energy, with indigenous partners in the development sector, the utility sector, and financial partners, how do we mirror that success for energy efficient housing and facilities? Because that has a great benefit in terms of cost reduction, greenhouse gas reduction, huge economic development opportunity, and frankly, major other corollary benefits like improved health and social status. So we feel that there's very different financing issues. We think the renewable energy financing issue has largely been solved because we've had, as I mentioned, over thousands of projects. And then latterly, there is a major problem that we need new design tools of financing for energy efficient housing and homes. That's a great idea, Chris. I mean, BMO, we're working with government and other partners for a retrofit financing product for commercial real estate. And it's something we can definitely talk to you about leveraging for residential, especially in Indigenous communities. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that, Susan. What I would note is that we think this design process is a blended financing model, which may involve some grant financing from government. It may involve some climate financing, recognizing this value to reducing greenhouse gases and selling the renewable energy credits, for example. And that may involve some commercial financing that is a long-term asset that's very, very helpful. Agree. And it would be great to talk to you about that. Maybe just just before we wrap up, I wanted to talk about the value chain in terms of, I mean, maybe it's going back to renewable energy. Maybe there's um, something we can talk about, too, in terms of, of heat pumps and electrification opportunities. How is Canada building resilience in our renewable energy generation capabilities and, and everything that we need to decarbonize? So, you know, for example, the manufacturing of inputs throughout the value chain from the metals to the finished products. Are we actively developing the manufacturing sectors that we need to advance climate solutions, or will we be relying on imports from other countries? That's a great question, and that's a concern. Because of supply chain gaps, and in fact, the growth in demand for renewable energy and other forms of clean energy, supply chain supply is becoming an issue. So therefore, whether you're dealing with storage batteries, or you're dealing with wind turbines or transformers, 
they're all becoming a gap, and our Canadian manufacturing capacity is very weak. So I would say there's two strategies that we need to think of as a country and with Indigenous communities as partners. One is to look at growing our internal manufacturing capacity in certain key areas. I would note in terms of rare earth minerals and batteries, that is an area that we believe has great potential. And then latterly, I think we really need to look at more um, combined procurement. Why does every utility have to buy their own transformers, have their own procurement mechanisms? Why can't we do them at scale? Why does every wind energy project have to look at their separate procurement? Can we do that together? Volume gives you power in a market. So I think there's a combined solution here of two strategies. One is to make sure that we target building domestic manufacturing capacities in key areas of growth where we have inherent competitive advantage, for example, with rare earth minerals. And then laterally, looking at more creative approaches to procurement so we can buy volume at scale. Your heat pumps example is a great illustration. You know, we know, for example, there is a need for between 10,000 to 40,000 heat pumps in indigenous homes every year. But does that have to be bought in the tens or the hundreds by every separate indigenous committee? Or can it be combined together to buy that with volume volume purchase with one supplier with the inherent advantages of having price scale advantages when you buy at volume and also supply advantages when you buy at volume? We need creative procurement and we also have to look at a targeted manufacturing capacity. Chris Anderson, thank you for sharing these insightful ideas with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. It's been a pleasure, Susan. Thanks for reaching out. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.